Hello friends, it's good to be together today. You made it. You made it through another week. Glad you're here. Our sermon series is called Stories That Shape Us. We're going through this sermon series at the same time as a video devotional series on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. This week was my dad's birthday, so you heard me tell a story about my dad. Ron and Julie and Corey were the others that stepped forward to share on Wednesday and Friday. So grateful for their stories. If you don't receive this emailed to you, please sign up on our website. We would love to include you each week on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Let's pray as we dive into God's word together today. Oh Lord, thank you for carrying us safely through another week. We have made it to the Sabbath this sacred pause where we are pressing in to commune with you. We desire more than anything else to experience your presence today. So wherever each person is joining in right now, I pray that we would experience the blessing of the Sabbath, that we, your people, would enter into your rest today, as Hebrews 4 speaks of, and that we would press in towards your presence. Holy Spirit, let us say that we have had communion with you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the stories that shapes us as a faith community is the story of the Sabbath. The story of a God who created, God who speaks sun and moon, water and land and plant life, and it appears. Then God who who forms animals and shapes them and blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply. God who shapes and forms human humanity, humankind, and says, be fruitful and multiply. And then God who uses the very same language to bless the seventh day, says he blesses it. This same God who created blesses a day, not a person, not a being, not a thing, but a period of time itself. As one theologian said, this period of time is also blessed to be fruitful. The Sabbath is a blessing in time that has regenerative power, a retreat in the week, work six days and rest the seventh, press in towards communion and fellowship with God and find a recreation, new energy, new courage, new strength. I've heard you speak about this too. Maybe some of you can relate that you pour out and then on the Sabbath, you experience God pouring back into you, renewing you in ways that were beyond what you even knew that you needed. God creates not a holy place, not a sanctuary or a structure where God would dwell, but God creates a holy time a time of fellowship with these human beings that God has just created, a place to come with the people of God. The Sabbath is a weekly reminder of where we have come from and where we are going. We live in this time between the two gardens. We live coming from the Garden of Eden and going towards the New Jerusalem. We're in this in-between space. But the Sabbath reminds us where we come from as created beings from God and where we're going. This story is headed towards restoration and redemption. There are two places 
in the scriptures that speak about the Sabbath command outside of this story in Genesis, this narrative of creation. Exodus chapter 20 is the one that most of you perhaps have memorized. It might be new for some of you, uh, but there's also the command in Deuteronomy 5 with one difference. Exodus chapter 20 verse 11, it says, We remember the God of creation, for in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Deuteronomy 5 verse 15, we hear these words, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Both of these are commands to keep the Sabbath, but for different reasons. Both of them apply to us. The Sabbath honors the God of creation who made in six days and then blessed the seventh and the God of redemption, the God who led us out miraculously out of Egypt. Remember that you were slaves. Remember that you had this former way of life that God brought you through to a different place. I led you out. So we remember with the Sabbath day, the God of creation and the God of redemption. We remember where we come from and we remember where we're going, remembering Eden, but remembering that we're pushing towards the new Jerusalem. I wish I could hear somebody say amen to that because this is what it means when we pause to celebrate when we honor the Sabbath day. Now I'm wondering, I wish that we were here together in person today. I'm wondering if you know where the seventh day Sabbath came from. Now, if you were here, I would ask you to raise your hand. If you are like my husband and he's a fifth generation Seventh-day Adventist, if you have grown up in the Seventh-day Adventist church, or maybe you're a fourth or a fifth or sixth generation, raise your hand right now. Maybe from your living room or from your dorm room or from your car, wherever you are, just raise your hand for a moment. You've grown up with this, right? It's always been, but that's not... It hasn't always been. Where did this originate? Do you know where the Sabbath, how we came to hold sacred the seventh day Sabbath? How did it happen? You see that early group, our early church founders were called Millerites first in the 19th century. When they were gathering together in that time period, they heard the preaching of William Miller and they became Adventists, those who were looking forward to the advent of Jesus Christ. But how did that group of Millerites become Seventh-day Adventists? We know where the Adventist part comes, waiting for the advent of Jesus. But how they became Seventh-day Sabbath keepers is a really fascinating story. You can, you can look up in this book, Passion, Purpose, and Power by Jim Nix from the Ellen White Estate, this story about three teenagers who were instrumental. There were others too, but three teenagers that were instrumental in this process. Two of them were siblings, Marion and Oswald, 15 years old and 16 years old, and Jay and Andrews, who at that time was 16 years old. Three teenagers. In Marion's own words, 
15-year-old um, Marion said, In the spring of 1845, one of Elder T. M. Preble's tracts was sent to my father, containing extracts from reliable historians telling about how the Sabbath had merged into Sunday observance with no claim of divine authority for that change. All references to the Bible were hunted out, and that gave me, that were given me in this wonderful tract. The promise the, uh, was made fresh in my memory. I expected that I would stand alone. Hear the words of Marian, 15 years old. From my heart I said, no other day but the one God has sanctified will I observe. I handed the tract to my older brother, saying nothing, but then soon he was ready to join me. These two shared it with Jan Anders, then 16 years old, and all three of them were convicted. Then they shared the tract with their parents. Brother and sister stole who were also led to the importance of the Sabbath. Now there was no time to waste. They had to witness about the Sabbath. So they sent a $10 bill and they asked for more of these tracks. But instead of just receiving a package with the tracks themselves, the minister came with them and he met with the group and he was surprised to see a Millerite group who still believed in the Advent and who were still holding on to their faith. So he taught them about the Sabbath and the group grew to seven families. And they started to share the tracts that they had received with others. One of those individuals that read the track was Joseph Bates. Joseph Bates was this sailor turned into a preacher as he believed this Millerite message. He was one of those ones who was, who was very instrumental in the starting of our church. He went on to write a tract himself. And it was his writing that influenced two individuals named James and Ellen White of the importance of the Seventh-day Sabbath. Have you heard those names? So Joseph Bates, he was instrumental in that way. He became known in the Adventist church as the apostle of the Sabbath. You see, Joseph, once he saw it, he couldn't help but share it with others. But at first, when he started to understand this, he was concerned. He writes in his own words, How could I make such a big change? Friends and family and brethren. But then one passage of scripture, he says, was always as clear as a sunbeam. It allowed him to move forward with strength. What is that to thee? Follow thou me. It was that one verse, he said, that, that changed everything to him. It was the invitation, the very words of Jesus to his soul. What is that to thee? It's this passage in John chapter 21, verse 22, that became the key passage for Joseph Bates. But before we get there to that passage, let's back up for a moment. Do you know who Joseph Bates was? He was older than the others in 1845 in that spring when he also discovered the Sabbath. He was 53 years old. These other founders, if you remember, 15, 16, 16, they were younger, but 53-year-old Joseph Bates, he was the son of a volunteer in the Revolutionary War. He himself fought in the War of 1812. He was captured and forced uh, to serve the British uh, on, a, on a boat, but then he ended up becoming a sailor himself and then becoming a captain as he took on this, this trade, this career. He sailed everywhere. He became a captain who was compassionate and kind to those around him. One time when he was heading out to see his wife, Prudence Bates, packed a Bible in his luggage. And while he was out there on the sea for days on end, he read the Bible and he was converted. 
he came back following Jesus. Can you imagine her joy as she met him as he came back from that voyage? Joseph Bates was driven by passion. He was open to others and all through his life, he allowed people to have an influence on him. He was an abolitionist. There were times when he was preaching the Millerite message in the South when his own life was threatened because he was unwilling to restrict who he was willing to share this message of hope with. He, he was even at one time thought he was going to lose his life while he was preaching this message. He moved forward with the cause of health and temperance. He was the first vegetarian and temperance movement um, leader in our church. He was a vegetarian in the early 1840s. You see, he saw the sickness and suffering of the sailors. They, they had poor rations, but they also had poor habits, and he wanted them to have health. He wanted them to thrive. And so he himself started abstaining from meat and alcohol and other things and wanted them to experience the same. He believed fiercely in the separation of church and state. He saw that other ships required, forced the sailors into Anglican worship services, but he believed people needed to be convicted on their own and make the choice themselves. So he was fierce about each person's conscience and their ability to follow their own choice. This shows up later with his family. Prudence Bates, the one who was instrumental in leading him to his very Christian faith, did not follow her husband in keeping the Sabbath. The same wife that packed that Bible um, so many years ago and, and, and gave him access to Jesus Christ, she said, I, I need to keep going to my Christian church. So for four years... Joseph would drive her to her Christian church on Sunday, then go back home, and then go back to get her after the service. He said he was convicted in his soul that he could not keep the, the Pope's Sabbath, but wanted to keep the Lord's Sabbath. But he wanted her to have her own choice. And so he drove her there and drove back and drove to get her to bring her home. Four years later, she followed in keeping the Sabbath truth because she found the beauty of the Sabbath on her own. God led her there. And so they became this couple that was keeping the Sabbath and leading others to the Sabbath as well. Joseph Bates was open to change and yet was respectful for the growth and process that was happening in his wife as well as in other people around him. I'm moved by that part of his story. There was this, this key text for him that I also see applying to the rest of the people in his life. John 21, 22. What is that to thee? Follow thou me. It's this story when Peter is there on the beach and Jesus is reinstating him. He says, do you love me? And he's asking him three times, just reinstating him after Peter has denied him three times. But Peter looks over his shoulder and he wants to know what's going to happen with John. Jesus is telling him some hard things about what will happen in his own journey of discipleship. And he points at John. He says, what about him? And Jesus says these words. That meant so much to Joseph Bates later on. He says, what is that to you, Peter? Follow me. All you have to worry about is following me. What about them? <laughs> what about those others? Uh, what about these people that won't understand why I'm keeping the Sabbath? What about these others that won't understand the vision or the dream that you've put in my heart? What about them? And Jesus told Joseph very clearly, no, no. 
You're just to follow me. Rugged individualism meets communal thinking here. This firm commitment to freedom of conscience, but also a care for others, is evidenced in Joseph's life. He, he knew what he believed and what God had put on his heart to follow. But then in the way that he treated prudence, in the way that he treated those who served on his ship and, and those others in his life, we see that there was this respect and love and care for other people in his life that just is astounding. That somehow staying together in the midst of difference is evidenced in his life. For all those four years as he drove his wife back and forth to her church. Hear those words again that convicted Joseph's heart. What is that to you? Follow me. As we live our daily discipleship journey, there are so many opportunities to look around, to look over our shoulder at the people around us. Why is my path so steep and so challenging? Their path seems to be more smooth and seamless. Why does their journey include less loss or suffering than my own? Or maybe you're just wondering, why is the path of discipleship so difficult? Why is this so hard right now, God? Why is it that we're facing what we're facing? These questions come easy for us, yet their answers are only known by God the mysterious will of God that can be trusted. How about you? How have you experienced the work of God in your own life? This is how Joseph and Mary and John and Oswald experienced God. They found this beauty, this truth opening up before them, and they talk about the joy of finding the Sabbath, this sacred pause of communing with their Savior, this new hope that was being birthed inside of them. This is how John the Beloved and Peter experienced God, learning how to follow after Jesus and somehow be together in the shared life while pursuing God wholeheartedly with no, nothing else veering their focus. They found the beauty in Jesus and in following after him wherever he led, even following him into the Sabbath truth that would test them and their relationships around them. We too are invited to understand the now in light of what has happened and what is to come from where we have come from, creation, and where we are going, redemption. I read this story this week and it, it was incredible to read a French composer by the name of Oliver Messian was in a concentration camp in 1941. While there, he started meditating on the four gospels and on revelation. And because of this, he was, he describes that he was filled with hope in the midst of hell. Pause for a moment. If you find yourself struggling with the chaos or the concern, um, what is going to happen with our nation? What is going to happen with our church? What's going to happen in your family? Notice where he focused in the midst of this, the gospels and revelation. He was in prison. And while he was there, he found that he was imprisoned with three other famous musicians in that camp. He found four instruments. He found a cello with a missing string, a beat-up violin, a well-worn clarinet, and a piano with keys that stuck together. He composed what he entitled a quartet 
for the end of time. It's a piece that's almost an hour long, and if you want to, you can Google that on YouTube, A Quartet for the End of Time by Oliver Messian. In January, he said he played this with the other three musicians for the prisoners and the guards. It was cold, it was a common area, and it was so frigid with snow all around them. He said the snow was whipping and the instruments were poor, but he said, never have I had an audience that listened with such rapt attention. When you watch the video on YouTube, you can hear this discordance, you can hear the pain, but in the end, it almost makes you hold your breath because it's beautiful, it's new, it's harmonious. This is a picture of our call and our work in the world. We catch a picture of what the church is called to in what Oliver Messian and those other musicians afforded those in the concentration camp in 1941. In that cold, they caught a glimpse of the future. You see, we are the people of the future living in the present. We are the people of the Sabbath. That means we know the story that we're living into. We know where we come from and we know where we're going and that changes the way that we live. It changes the way that we show up now. In the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the trauma, we are people that are playing a different song with our lives, that invite a sacred pause. As people come along and encounter us, people will stop. They will shiver in the cold and they will see in our lives something new breaking through right in the midst of this world. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here, these words Part of these words that inspired the beauty of that song in Revelation 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, then the angel showed me the river of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding the fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. And his servants shall serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever the angel said to me, write these words, for they are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed are those who keep the words of the prophecy in this scroll. This is where we're going. We are in the in-between between where we've come from and where we're going. But this, just like that quartet for the end of time, moving towards a climax of beauty that takes your breath away. This, the healing of the nations, food enough for all, 
homes and security and equality and strength and vitality and the renewal of all things. There is retreat in the midst of this world and it comes from the story that shapes us, the story that has shaped us from the beginning of the world, the story of Sabbath, a story of a God who creates and a God who redeems. There is Sabbath for the people of God. There remains a rest. There remains a retreat. There remains a, a pulling aside to the sacred presence of God where mentally and spiritually and emotionally you can be renewed here. And that changes the way that you live and it changes how others pause and stop and see that something else is possible, that there is new life breaking in all around.